0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. This is Dominic Aquila along with Paul Harrell uh, coming to you in our weekly updates from our newsletter and from the top 10 articles that appear uh, on the Aquila Report. That the readers of the Aquila report, in reading them, uh, clicked on them, read them, and that's how we get our top 10 list. And so we are real pleased to be able to present that to you. I appreciate uh, the being spelled by Ryan Beasy over the last two Mondays uh, for this weekly report, uh, as I was in Egypt teaching, and appreciate uh, Paul navigating things uh, through as well. Paul, so I trust everything went well.
1: Uh, it went good, that. yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun to do and um, uh, anyway, if, if if one of us uh, ever can't do the podcast, then you know I think we have a, a good fill in. So good, good that's what
0: we want under that. Okay, well Paul, let's go ahead and begin. You read the top 10 from 10 to six. I'll do five to one and then we'll start our discussion with the
1: top 10 All right. So number 10 from last week, Jonathan van Maren writing euthanasia. Would it bother us if they used pillows? That's a very interesting story. Number nine, Genesis. This is a, a headline by uh, Jonathan uh, Safarti. Genesis Bible authors believed it to be history. Another really interesting piece. Number eight, Tom Hervey writing. Take heed from who or take heed whom you celebrate. Thoughts on John Brown and evangelical attitudes about him. Number seven from last week, Nate Fisher writing. Reject ritual. Masking. Very good piece as well. Number six, we have Xiao Chong. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Misreading scripture cross-culturally.
0: Good. Well, then number five, can we really believe in demonic possession by Benjamin Glasser? Uh, we have uh, the number four as um, Streams in the Desert, Burning Man, 2023. Uh, This is by Mike Little. Uh, Number three is an article, Christian Nationalism and Blasphemy Laws, an opinion piece by uh, Larry Ball. And then a story by uh, Denny Burke, Andy Stanley's version of Christianity. And then number one uh, by Chris Gordon, uh, no, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, five warning signs that a pastor has not been truly called by God by Chris Gordon. So the start with this one is number one, which the readers uh, thought uh, that was interesting. I guess people wanting to ask, well, what are those five things? And based, they're very basic. Uh, Chris Gordon, and pastor himself, and working with pastors uh, because this age, he contributes uh, and counsels uh, men who are seeking uh, whether or not they're called to the pastoral ministry, and he starts out with uh, number one of these five is no formal theological training, Uh, so this might be meaning that uh, he's saying that may not be truly called. Some churchgoers avoid asking or even caring about whether their pastors have been properly trained for pastoral ministry. It sometimes happens in churches that anyone says that he feels called to do ministry does it, Um, We we wouldn't, of course, do this with any any other calling. I would be negligent at best if I sent my sick loved one to a self-proclaimed medical doctor who said that he felt called but also skipped the MCATs and uh, an accredited medical school. But in some churches, this hasn't stopped us. As long as a person feels led uh, and has a big heart and can motivate people, he may be given the title pastor. And so he describes that a little bit more. Uh, the another reason is a uh, lack of good preaching or any preaching himself or any training in it to communicate what the scriptures teach. Um, the no understanding of a creed, um, actually that's number two, the preaching's number three. And the idea of what is it that uh, guides the understanding of the scriptures? And that's an important part uh, the idea of holiness, uh, how does the person live and uh, display his Christianity, and very little or no ecclesiology, that is, understanding of what the doctrine of the church is. So, in this uh, piece, very brief, but it's very helpful, uh, Chris Gordon gives us uh, things to look at as we're looking at churches and uh, those people who claim to be called, the importance of the place of the church in developing. Those who are called as ministers of the gospel uh, in their preparation, that they are equipped to be uh, doctors of the soul, uh, carers of our hearts. And uh, so it's warning. And so I think this must have
1: resonated with our readers since it's the uh, number one read article of last week. Uh, Yeah, definitely. This piece out of uh, this is under number four, uh, this quote uh, under no holiness being a warning sign. Um, I am wearied of seeing 40- to 50-year-old pastors dress and act like teenagers. This strange, what I call incarnational hipsterism, has overrun the church with worldliness. Age denial is one thing, but it's quite another to live out that denial in an artificial and insincere manner as a pretext of doing ministry in a relevant way. Our love as pastors should be without hypocrisy. This is without masks or I'm sorry, that is without masks, uh, yeah. not not COVID masks, but, you know.
0: Uh. Right. It's interesting the word mask is going to show up at least in three articles uh, <laughs> that we have here in the top ten, Paul. So it's um interesting um, word. It's come into our lexicon yes. of things that we're concerned about now since COVID. But anyway, a good article by Chris uh, Gordon. I think uh, when your email comes tomorrow on Tuesday, uh, the top ten, you'll be able to – See that along with the other nine hyperlinked and just click on it and you can easily uh, read it. And then we also would encourage you to send it on to others. You can forward the whole email uh, so that way you don't have to just send separate articles. Okay, number two is by Denny Burke, uh, Andy Stanley's version of Christianity. Uh, We've had other articles, Paul, in the last few weeks on the conference that Andy uh, Stanley, pastor of the North Point Community Church in the Atlanta area, um, that he sponsored in um, dealing with the uh, inclusive idea, a conference that uh, dealt with uh, features gay affirming uh, concepts and uh, the, you know, non-judgmental approach. Uh, c- the claim is non-judgmental approach to those who are struggling and families of those who are struggling with uh, this matter. And so, um, Al Moeller had written a number of uh, editorial pieces and spoke on his um, uh, podcast about uh, the train is leaving the station, in which Mohler criticizes a North Point held conference uh, that was going to be held. Well. Surely uh, Stanley never explicitly mentions Moeller in his message because uh, at the close of that conference that weekend, then uh, Andy Stanley gave a message. And so Denny is responding to that. But he does say in the outset that he does not hold the same version of Christianity that Moeller holds to. And the rest of Stanley's message then, he says, certainly bears that out. Indeed, the entire message is an apologia. Uh, that is a defense of sorts for North Point's decision to host gay affirming speakers as for the North speech teaching, uh, regarding the North Point teaching on sexuality. So he writes, Moeller is actually accusing me of departing from a version of Christ- biblical Christianity, so I want to go on record and say I've never subscribed to his version of biblical Christianity to begin with, so I'm not leaving anything, and if uh, he were uh, here, he would say, well, Andy, I never subscribed to your version of biblical Christianity, and that's okay. We uh, can agree to disagree, but this is uh, so extraordinarily misleading. In my opinion, just my opinion, his version of biblical Christianity is the problem. His version, this is Andy speaking against Moeller's version, uh, this version of biblical Christianity is why people are leaving Christianity unnecessarily. It's the version that causes people to resist the Christian faith because they can't find Jesus in the midst of all the other stuff and all the other theology, and all the other complexities that um, get uh, um, blogged, or blobbed, I should say, on the uh, message. So the bottom line is the version of Christianity draws lines, and Jesus draws circles. He drew circles so large that it included many people in the circle that it consistently made religious leaders nervous. So in this um a critique of the andy stanley in the conference and also the sermon that he gave uh, denny burke is, is interacting with that he believes that denny stanley's message is subversive because it's designed to sound like authentic christianity indeed it is designed to try and persuade the consciences of christians that they can affirm unrepentant sinners as brothers and sisters in christ It's designed to convince listeners that churches should affirm the unrepentant as followers of Christ. And uh, it is that point that both Moeller and uh, Denny Burke are taking exception. So he says, it brings me no joy to say any of these things. Nevertheless, they must be said. Anyone who listens to this teaching and follows it will be led away from Jesus, not to Jesus. This sad truth may be lost on the congregation at North Point who gave Stanley an ovation after he finished his teaching. But it shouldn't be lost on faithful Christians. We must contend for the faith in the face of those who would undermine it. Otherwise, such ovations may find their way to other churches, maybe even yours. So uh, warning. And this goes along with the uh, article we just read from Chris Gordon on the reasons uh, we need to have clergy that are adequately equipped for the ministry of uh, of preaching and teaching in the Church of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul, we see this is, uh, uh, it almost reminds me, Paul, of w- what happened with Revoice back in 2018. It sort of was the spark that lit the fuse that caused, uh, you know, four, five, six years of great debate within churches. I know it's in the Presbyterian Church in America. There was a great deal of debate. And uh, what's happening here. With Andy Stanley, sort of another salvo that will probably spark another series of discussions
1: as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that is a very good comparison to Revoice in 2018. Um, I also, before we recorded this podcast, I was on Twitter and I saw a post of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, I believe it's the Great uh, Awakening podcast. And uh, she was specifically talking about the error that Stan that uh, that Stanley is uh, is in here. Um, And he basically she basically comes up with the question of, um, you know, out of everybody out there, you know, who's the one person who does not want people to repent of their sin? And that person is Satan. And that's I mean, that's the truth of the matter. He does not want people to repent of their sin. And we have Andy Stanley that is essentially promoting a version of Christianity where because of the cultural conditions and homosexuality is just, you know, it's, it's hard and it's just uh it's a, it's a difficult plight in life and all of the other emotional nonsense that goes along with that somehow that because it's this issue, we're not going to tell people to repent of their sin if it's homosexuality because it's just too difficult. And we, we, you know, and that's just nonsense. And uh, she does a really good job uh, in that, in that clip there really, uh, addressing the issue head on, as does this article. This article does a good job as well, and I think that is the issue, and he really hits on it. This is this is a version of Christianity where there is no repentance. As a matter of fact, discussion of repentance is avoided because we don't want to hurt people's feelings.
0: Right, and exactly. And so uh, get ready for the next uh, wave of discussions that will flow from all this. What we see now is the beginning, the seed of uh, the next wave of discussion in, in the life of the church. Okay, well, article number three, written by Larry Ball, an opinion piece called Christian Nationalism and Blasphemy Laws. He says, I uh, believe, I have made it known publicly that I am not a fan of the term Christian nationalism, and he gives a credence to an op-ed he wrote here on the Akula Report uh, a number of weeks ago, and uh, so it's hyperlinked, so you can read it, Christian nationalism, dump the term while we can. He doesn't like it. I believe that the term nationalism evokes an association with Hitler's uh, Nazi nationalism or Mussolini's fascist nationalism. This expression has not been helpful in the debate over the relationship between state and the Christian faith. I think the tumultuous discussion over the use of this term in the past year has proven me correct. I prefer the term Christendom or Christian nation, I do not believe the United States, I believe the United States was once a Christian nation, but now it is not. So I believe that Christians need then to be busy in restoring the dominance of the Christian faith in the public square, beginning with the preaching of the gospel that captures not only the hearts of people, but the institutions that permeate our nation. So he goes on in his article, uh, but Peter, uh, the, the, um, ball larry ball to say talking about the uh, laws dealing with blasphemy he says however laws blasphemy laws are inevitable whether law is written on paper or simply a social norm makes little difference and as laws they are enforceable blasphemy is exacting a penalty for verbal verbal or written speech that disparages something considered sacred in a particular group of society It all depends on what a group or society considers as being sacred. Ultimately, it depends on the dominant religion of that group or society. Those of us uh, raised up in previous Christian generations remember blasphemy laws quite well. First, in the home, uh, there was usually the unwritten blasphemy laws. If a vulgar word came out of my mouth in my home, then my mother would threaten to wash my mouth out with soap. I remember my mother using that phrase, Paul. I don't know if
1: yours did. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. And I was uh, reflecting the other day that one of the words that we were not allowed to use in uh, our house growing up, which is now commonplace, is the word idiot. I would get in so much trouble if I used the word idiot. Isn't that weird? Is anybody yeah. else out there raised in a household? I I or, don't know. Maybe that or was just, any uh,
0: kind of, you know, and not only idiot, uh, you know, calling someone a moron or, or, you know, anything that was disparaging, um, that it was considered from the, her parents uh, as blasphemy. Uh, that it was an inappropriate word to use uh, and it was demeaning and uh, so forth. So it's the same thing that happens in the home, uh, happens in the uh, culture. So he says, for instance, uh, today's cult, uh, blasphemy laws still exist, but they have changed because of the dominant religion of America has changed. Remember, he, he's arguing with the point that America was Christian nation in the sense of its impact and influence, and therefore blasphemy laws tied in with what Christianity considered to be vulgar or out of place. Now he's saying there's a different religion that America has, it's no longer a Christian, and therefore there are some words that cannot be used without paying a penalty for your speech. Using an incorrect pronoun for a transgender person is now considered blasphemy. In Canada in 2021, Robert Hoogland surrendered himself to the court after a warrant was issued for his arrest by the Attorney General of the British Columbia. His crime was calling his daughter a biological female by female pronouns and refusing to uh, affirm her medical transition to become a trans male. So he was arrested. That was a a blasphemy law being exercised on him. So it comes down to this is that the old arguments for freedom of speech based on the U.S. Constitution make sense when America was a Christian nation. All free speech has limits and the Christian faith provided those boundaries where people agreed on what was sacred and what was not. And since we are no longer a Christian nation, uh, those old freedoms of speech arguments based on the 1950s civic courses, uh, the sort of the Eisenhower era of 1950s, are no longer useful. And when the sacred becomes profane and the profane becomes sacred, the blasphemy laws change. They never disappear. And basically it says blasphemy laws regulate every society. Uh, it depends or depends and just depends on what nation, the nation, a nation considers sacred and profane. So whatever the religion of the nation that will determine the blasphemy. So there are words that we can use and there are words we can't use. And so he's arguing for a return to having a Christianized understanding of what is really blasphemous and what is uh, derogatory of those made in the image of God. So very helpful uh, opinion piece by
1: Larry Ball. I love this piece. I think it's good. I think it's pointing out something that uh, a lot of people are coming to this uh, uh, this awareness that you really there are two choices. You're either going to be a pagan nation or, or a Christian nation. And. If you really look at I mean, if you were to poll test what's going on with the transient of kids, I mean, the majority of Americans, for example, are not for this. And yet we have this what seems to be a minority uh, that's enforcing the the definitions, of enforcing the speech that you can and can't use. I really I mean, the first thing that came to mind when you're reading this before you actually get to his example, citing the LGBT. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And it goes right in in line with the Andy Stanley article that we just read you know, we're we're diluting down the gospel because we don't want to tell homosexuals to repent, right? And likewise, it's considered blasphemy to, you know, say that, you know, sodomy is morally wrong. Um, And, you know, and then there are other things. I mean, you know, you could look back during the COVID narratives. I mean, there were other things that were sacred. The opinion of doctors, you know, were sacred and you couldn't challenge as long as you know, the media got behind whatever the narrative was, uh, masking, you know, we'll talk about that here in a minute, uh, was sacred. Um, then, you know, then you had the whole, uh, the, the debate for a long time between, you know, people who wanted to take the facts and people who didn't want to take the facts. Anyway, uh, blasphemy laws are a thing and it's, it's wild to me that we had actual blasphemy laws on the books in America and in, in some, in some places as late as 1930, uh, here in this country. And so, I think a lot of people are starting to to figure figure out, um, you know, the foundation of this country uh, when the founding fathers were sitting around and, you know, writing, writing the First Amendment framers, um, you know, when they were writing the First Amendment, they weren't writing it with the understanding that, oh, this will allow people to distribute pornography freely. That's freedom of speech, you know, but that's what we think about when we think of freedom of speech today. But that's not there. That wasn't their definition. And I think people are starting to realize that we've uh, really drifted away from, you know, the first intentions of uh, of America specifically. So
0: exactly. So excellent article by Larry Ball. Number four, uh, it's almost an extension in a different in a sort of unique kind of way. It's uh, the streams in the desert. Colin Burning Man to 2023 and uh, Mike Little a pastor in uh, Dayton, says a few weeks ago, millions of Americans learned for the first time about a new modern religion uh, because of a flash flood in the desert of Western Nevada that left some 75,000 people dangerously stranded. But were people? what were 75,000 people doing in a barren desert? Well, he says they were there for a weed-long fa- pagan festival called Burning Man, where they would go and live in the desert and they go every year for a week of revelry. Uh, Elon Musk calls it the Silicon Valley's annual must-go-to retreat. And if so, then Silicon Valley is more of a problem than you and I had imagined. The schedule is punctuated by a host of quasi-religious rituals. The makeshift city that hosts its uh, host, it boasts of an orgy dome, with long lines of people waiting to enter and do exactly what that name says. If that seems unlikely, feel free to confirm it however you like, but uh, be aware that you will not find uh, you'll find it disturbing, and I will not uh, supply a link so that the author says I'm going to take that liberty. I'm not going to uh, show you know direct you in that direction. Just take my word for it or search it yourself. The entire complex, he says, there at uh, Burning Man is centered around two freshly built structures, one of them a temple and the other some form of massive depiction of all mankind. And at the end of the week, they ritually burned the temple and the man, that second one, uh, which is where they get the name Burning Man. This year they built and burned the Temple of the Heart and the 60-foot-tall Chapel of Babel, respectively. Revelers spent months preparing for it. Partly because if you are not properly outfitted, you could die in the waterless heat. And partly because everyone is supposed to contribute something to the affair. If that isn't a religion, then the word religion has no meaning. So he mentions this and sets it up because uh, he's showing how, in essence, uh, he said I don't, maybe God was involved making himself known. Uh, there they are in the desert where it hardly ever rains. And when it did rain, because of the, the makeup of the dirt and the ground that was there, it just was a mess. And it upset the whole thing. And people were stranded out there uh, trying to get out because of the comp- composition of the mud. And people couldn't walk on it. They were stuck. And uh, you know whether or not they would have enough food to survive and so forth. So in our era, we speak of rainbows in their purely and materialistic categories. Just think of the uh, LGBTQ pride uh, flag. Uh, they're pretty uh, to look at, but it's not, It's uh, but it's all just uh, physics and it means nothing. In truth, however, the great bowl of peace that bursts with light of the sun has a divine purpose. God made the rainbow as a sign that he will never again flood the earth with our uh, for our wickedness. Every single rainbow you see has that meaning. So what, the point that he's making is that uh, God, in essence, said, you want to do this. He was, in essence, mocking them. Uh, he removes the restraints, and he sends the rain, and all of a sudden they, they're coming under the judgment side of what that uh, rainbow represents as opposed to the promise side that he made to those who follow him. So this is a very interesting, enlightening article by Michael Little, and uh, I think you'll you'll find it uh, very helpful. And um, I'm glad that uh, Mike sort of wrote this because uh, not many people are aware of the Burning Man thing that's been going on for years, and we didn't know about it. Uh, It was not something on our, our immediate radar.
1: Well, you know, and that's good if 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 people didn't know about it, I'm glad that they are finding out about it now, because it uh, just in terms of understanding just how far uh, gone we are in terms of just the celebration, the overt celebration of paganism and, um, you know, just wicked practice and that and what's going on and, and how we really are, uh, you know, at a, at a place where it's, you know, it's kind of it's, you know, we, we need to pray for our country you know certainly because stuff like this just um is leading us you know generally down a path with, that nobody wants to be on you know for the next generation uh and that sort of thing so uh yeah i mean i've been aware of it for a while and it's just you know it's horrifying you know they what, what are you, they're building a giant man in the desert and then that you know at the end they set him on fire and i mean it's this stuff that you would read in in some sort of you know, I don't know, fantasy novel or, you know, something that would happen in Mordor, not something that would happen in the United States of America. And yet here we are.
0: Well, it's a part of the ritual because it is a pagan ritual. And that's the reason fire also becomes a notion about um, burning things. You sacrifice things to Molech and other gods. And, uh, and so the, the, it, it's correct to call it. It is a pagan ritual. That here attracts seventy-five thousand people, so it's not the word Satan isn't used or anything like that, but it nonetheless is has all of those touches, which goes back to uh, Larry Ball's point about the culture has shifted in its the thinking uh, in terms of what is uh, the religion that we have, and so it's not that we are neutral to religion; it's that there is a religion that from which there are practices that come. And uh, so you, you you either have a biblical religion about what then blasphemy is, or you have a non-biblical one and they have their own uh, ethics of uh, blasphemy and, uh, and practices of worship. Well, maybe in that case, then when we read number five, which is by Benjamin Glasser, can we really believe in demonic possession? Uh, that Benjamin uh, Glasser here is raising the question about, do we really believe in demon possession? So he says, you know, here we are in 2023, uh, and it remains an active uh, issue, but we tend not to really believe it. He says, most enlightened people, usually of a settled upper middle-class bourgeois mindset, are of the opinion that we have moved past such notions and need to spend our time in the real world. However, it has been the opinion of the last several Tuesday essays that he has written once a week, uh, that it actually is the comfortable suburban types that need to get with the program. Not only is demonic activity still with us, Denying its existence is dangerous for the well-being of humanity. The aforementioned forest deities and likewise more uh, are likewise more with us than some people uh, bother uh, to consider. He says more on that later, and he's not only going to write this, then he follows follow up with another article after this one. Uh, So today, as we get back to the question, I want to ask a few leading questions first about why or better yet. How did we get into a world where so few people want to believe in the presence of the spiritual, whether good or bad? The answer to that goes back to man's discovery in the 18th century, uh, that's in the 1700s, uh, that he no longer needed the superstitions of the past. And that's during the Enlightenment, basically. We, now we've come to the seeing our minds as super uh, above everything else so we don't need the superstitions of the past to grow crops or in finding new scientific ways of accomplishing victories over nature previously thought impossible humanity's confidence in itself and the unwillingness to set its failures made it immune to the uh, numeral realm and numeral realm is that realm that you can't see Uh, and and it's that spirit realm or the spiritualized version. However, just like a dog who hides its face behind a telephone pole merely because uh, Dr. PhD isn't looking at the transcendent doesn't mean it's not there. Our haughtiness just makes us more blind and grants more power to the wicked spirits of the age. And so here we just were talking about uh, the burning man, and we said most people weren't even aware of it. And uh, so... And then when we read what happens there, we have trouble believing that was what was taking place. But there it is in public uh, display. So he just explains more and says he ends up by saying um, uh, in closing, we, we continue with this inquiry next week. He says it's important that we approach the question of demonic activity with education and competence to overcome the doubt and cynicism of the academic you uh, need to meet them on their own ground, not with their weapons, but with they, uh, but what where they are. Just like any other evangelical activity, of course, it is not just an ivory tower that needs to be won over to these concepts. Those who have bought into mere Hollywood tropes uh, need to be wised up as well. That's why it's central our Christian faith that we think rightly on all subjects, no matter how uh, they and whatever they may be. So. Um, just a question does uh the spiritual world go beyond just the niceness of uh the triune god uh, go into the dark world of demonic
1: possession and uh, glasser is answering yes and we need to be aware of it i mean you talk about a thread of articles we go from burning man to are demons real um or is, mm-hmm. is demonic possession real or is it, and i just think that's uh fascinating uh when you kind of look at the progression of how these articles uh not that they're not that they're tarot cards or tarot cards or anything <laughs> mm-hmm. no no <laughs> not 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 that the uh the the, the not, i'm not saying the string of the articles are like you know constellations or anything i just i do find it fascinating that we're we're learning about Burning Man in the very next article is like, hey, hey, what, what's this demonic possession stuff? So, I mean, we but really those are
0: angers. You know, one of the things Satan does in deception is the he's the father of lies. And he tries to take that, which is, of course, really darkness and make it into light because he is sometimes even masquerades as an angel of light and to give the appearance that it's good. So take it back to the article uh, with on. Um, Andy Stanley as well, he's trying to take that, which is really in the dark world and part of the uh, sin that is contrary to everything that is holy and right, and turn light onto it and make it appear uh, natural. So we do have, a, you're right, there is a uh, pattern here that uh, we need to understand. Okay, number five, his article, or oh, this is number six, right? Uh, can Xiao um, uh, Chung uh, is um, I wrote a, an article then, which is misreading scripture cross-culturally. And now Zhao Sheng is a Chinese name. So he's saying, speaking at least, coming from a different language than English. says, I vividly remember the time in my youth when I was in a Bible study with my pastor and we were looking at Luke uh, 14, 25 to 35. And I got struck with Jesus' words in verse 26. And the words are, if anyone comes to me and does not hate uh, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I was a new believer, and I was, it was the first time I had read that passage. I was horrified by the verb hate, which today means to intensely dislike something um, or someone. Uh, As an Asian youth steeped in a culture that almost idolizes respect for one's parents, how could I hate my parents or my siblings? I love them. At the time, the Bible passage seemed clear to me. If you don't hate, if I don't hate my parents, I cannot follow Jesus. But I could not choose between them seemingly irreconcilable options, and I began to weep. After realizing why I was crying, my pastor quickly reassured me, that Jesus did not mean for us to literally hate our parents, but simply that we must love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. It was hyperbole, he explained. Of course, it was still a radical and to some degree offensive claim, but it uh, became less harsh when understood as not disliking one's parents, but as loving them uh, less uh, than one loves Jesus. So what he drew from that is my youthful read, uh, r- uh, my youthful self read our modern understanding of hate back into Jesus' word, use of the word, making his claim more offensive than it already was. I now know that people in Jesus' ancient Middle East culture uh, often spoke with colorful hyperbole to make a point, and this was their custom. And Jesus' original audience would have understood his statement to be not would to be that kind of exaggeration or hyperbole. And so he uses that as the starting point here, uh, Chow does, uh, Chong does, and um, he uses other biblical examples to show how um, we sometimes take our 21st century wording and structures and we read back into uh, the scripture without really understanding uh, the context in which it was spoken. So that's this article basically is just speaking about that we misread the scripture cross-culturally if we don't understand how it was intended to be understood when uh, first uh, reading it. Just one more thing, Paul, he just uh, refers to uh, the the, the conversation Jesus had or the statement Jesus had back and forth with uh, Peter in John 21, where he says, uh, Jesus asked him uh, twice, uh, Peter, do you love me? And when Jesus asked the question, he used the uh, word uh, agape, you know, to do you love me? And each time for the first two times, Peter responded, Lord, you know that I love you. But he used the lesser intense word, philos. We uh, get the word Philadelphia Philadelphia, city brotherly love. Uh, he used philos. And so finally, uh, Jesus, the third time, asks him. Uh, Peter, do you feel us? Not agape. Do you feel us, me? And therefore, I, you know, Peter, honest admission, he did not love Jesus sacrificially, at least not then. Jesus still commissioned him to feed and care for the flock. So he began to understand that we have to understand the way in which scripture is written, the context in which written read the words. And as it was used in the scripture itself and let scripture address scripture itself. So just a sort of a, it's a brief piece on the big word is hermeneutics on biblical interpretation and making sure that we understand things in the context, just, just an observation, uh, go back to our article number one to show the, again, connecting dots that where Chris Gordon says, if you have someone who hasn't really been trained, he might then not understand that, a biblical interpretation principle and therefore uh create uh, create a whole you know different view coming from the scripture using it in a 21st century sense instead of yeah. the uh, century in which it was written in the scripture so um uh, chung here gives us a very helpful brief but helpful thing make sure we understand scripture as god intended in a time that he wrote it and uh, otherwise, it will create all sorts of tensions in
1: our lives. Yeah, the only uh, the only thing I'll add is that in that John uh, verse that you just referenced, Dominic, um, I thought that was interesting—the different words uh, for love there. Um, I had never heard that, uh, seen that uh, broken down before. But um, also, it was always interesting. You know, why did he ask him three times? And then it is interesting that Peter denied Jesus three times uh, before he was crucified. And then he gets asked three times, yep. you know, do you love me? So I, I find that uh, to be uh, something very uh, interesting as well about that.
0: Yeah, it is. So, and it's important that you write, connect those dots, let scripture, uh, speak to scripture and interpret scripture. Um for that, and he does quote from the Westminster Confession, the very first chapter of the Westminster Confession has a a sentence or a paragraph that talks about the importance of understanding Scripture with Scripture, and the less clear passages are given light and clarity by the more clear passages, and there are other steps uh, for biblical interpretation that the Scripture itself gives, but we have to extract those principles as we read it. Okay. Number seven is reject ritual masking. So Paul, this can be the second one that we come up with, there's still one mother that's going to reference, uh, not as a major part, but at least a subsidiary part. Uh, So number seven, this is by Nate Fisher. And uh, he says, do not let health pretexts disguise a new pagan liturgy. And so he spins off of and addresses and gives the groundwork here of what, you know, during the COVID time, the, the things that happened that created consternation in our culture. Uh, Paul, you and I discussed this many times because there were a number of articles, pro and con, with regard to how Christians are to respond in the light of what is taking place and uh one of the most contentious was about the importance or non-importance of wearing masks so he says uh starts out um uh nick uh, fisher here in this uh, nate fisher uh in this article uh, masks are returning as public health officials raise alarms uh about the new <coughs> excuse me uh, uh new version of uh, covid the latest curve strain, it becomes clear that masking is developing into something of a seasonal enthusiasm. A certain segment of the population stands eager to don the mask at the slightest whiff of a new viral strain. Rejoining, a few de- devotees have uh, faithfully worn the mask since 2020. Most ominously mandates are also being reintroduced. So many Christians instinctively uh, resisted uh, COVID mandates, both mask and vaccine imposed by public health authorities, yet Christian leaders have struggled to offer compelling doctrinal analysis of this subject. And uh, that's almost like a, well, duh, but <laughs> why do you think there were so many uh, battles taking place in the life of the church and in call, and for worship services and how we conducted ourselves even in culture. So in terms of Ritual masking, what um, the author here is saying, is that it really is part of the new religion. So just think about uh, you, the shift that takes place. You have the burning man. Uh, you have uh, people misunderstanding scripture in, in ter- terms of interpretation. Uh, and so you you have the concept of the rainbow and how it's uh, perverted by the uh, population, uh, the current population. So you have all these things that are ritual. It basically is saying that that man, the human beings, because they made an image of God, this is our biblical context, uh, has to find something to worship. And if they're not going to believe in God in the God of creation God who made us, then we're going to find something. We're going to attribute godliness to that and we will worship it. So the mask is now becoming one of the symbols of that uh, religion that is so prominent, but has always been present from the very beginning of mankind after the fall. So, and um, he mentions Joshua Mitchell in American Awakening describes a new religion of innocence and stain. Uh, His thesis was developed before COVID, yet COVID rituals uh, fit seamlessly into his framework. And what he says is this, he describes how wokeness in a religion is a religion obsessed with innocence and with moral stain, two theological moral categories inherited, if not from bastardizing, from Protestant doctrines of sin. What are commonly called virtue signals are actually words of action designed to signal innocence from the perverse uh, pervasive sins of racism and other isms and phobias that pervade American society. And and when some stain nonetheless taints a community, that community responds with a ritual scapegoating designed to purge the stain and return the community to innocence. And that's just all religious language, Paul, that uh, is being used here. So the mask then becomes... One of these things, I'll end with this before you comment, the COVID-19 virus provided a physical stain that perfectly mapped onto this system. Masks and vaccines became symbols of innocence. Totems, think of totem poles, reflecting faith in the allegiance to, quote, the science, and all that's capitalized, as mediated uh, by the priestly class, anointed experts led by Dr. Fauci. Uh, COVID exposure became not merely a health risk, but a sin exposing one's community to the stain. This rhetoric of devoted adherents make this clear, complete with laments, laden with guilt when one caught COVID, regardless of the severity of the actual infection, despite great efforts to protect against, uh, against it, reminisce of when sin is found in a community, despite numerous purity rituals. Those who refused to follow such protocols, regardless of the scant evidence that there were these uh, measures actually prevented transmission, were seen as wantonly tainting the community and were then scapegoated for broader ills. Uh, the author, fortunately, does take us into a view, a biblical view in the, near the uh, middle to end of his article uh, because he does talk, how should Christians respond? Throughout history, Christians have resisted participating in pagan rituals, sometimes to the point of great persecution. When the emperor uh, 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 Decian Decian, uh, ordered everyone in the Roman Empire to burn incense to Caesar, numerous Christians accepted martyrdom rather than comply. After extended controversies in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Catholic Church forbade participation in Chinese Confucian Confucianism writes. Uh, r- Many Christian converts uh, have even engaged in personal names with pay- changed personal names with pagan uh, religious associations. The act in question need not be inherently pagan. Moses erected a bronze serpent at God's direction to save the Israelites from the poisonous snakes, and yet when later generations burned incense to it, to that uh, bronze serpent, uh, it was became an improper ritual. Hezekiah had to have it destroyed. Ritual masking offers a striking parallel to this example. Just as masks were originally symbols associated with the protection of health, their ritual embraced by an ungodly culture renders them now problematic. So as Christians are required to reject all, uh, are all Christians required to reject all masking outside of traditional or non- uh, ritual context. This is one of the great questions the church still must confront. So, uh, Paul, it, you know, this is a good setup and preparation for what may be coming around the future because, you know, people get anxious. Uh, the word You say the word COVID and they're ready to jump on the bandwagon all over again.
1: Yeah so I uh you know th- this is I I agree with this article 100%. This was these this really captures my feelings from the very outset of this. Um I mean I might have worn a mask a few times at the very very beginning but I I quit pretty soon after. Um I noticed a few times what was what was fascinating to me was if you didn't wear a mask in public you were shunned, and you were looked at as a. Uh, cause see, I, 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 I just saw it as a political symbol from the beginning. Not to say that there weren't plenty of Republicans, for example, that you know wanted to believe doctors, believe Fauci, put the masks on, but I just fu- fundamentally looked at it as a. I didn't believe what the government was saying. I just thought it was a, a really a political symbol more than anything, and that's also what caused me such great trepidation uh when we had you know forced masking in order to attend churches and that sort of thing I just thought it was based on a lie and I thought putting it on was affirming a lie and so my conscience was bound and I I just couldn't I couldn't go along with it but what I did notice was weird things like if you didn't wear your mask properly everything everybody was still good even if you had your mask uh just attached to one ear hanging down you didn't get the same looks that you, that you did if you didn't have one. They just wanted to know that you were affirming the thing that was on everybody's minds. That, at least that's the way I took it. This was just my perception, right? Uh, and so when he asks this question in the article, are Christians now required to reject all masking outside traditional non-ritual contexts? This is one of the great questions the church must confront. Absolutely, because of what you just said, Dominic, what's coming down the pike? What's going to be next? You know, I hear from people all of the time that say now it'll never be able to happen again the way it did. And I, I just I'm not so sure. Um, I, I really am not. Um, I, I think it, given the right context and the, the right media, the media is so powerful at convincing us uh, to be afraid. Um, you know, then the, I was talking to somebody the other day. I mean, you know, the threat of the national, for example, the, the International Day of Jihad that uh, was supposed to be on Friday. And I know there was an attack in France. A teacher was stabbed to death. And I think uh, there was an Israeli diplomat stabbed on the streets of China. Um, I I mean, you know, if if, uh, terrorist attacks come back to the United States in a big way, on that day of the National uh, uh, Jihad Day, Google let their employees stay home. Big corporations all over the country allowed their employees to not come into work. Now, that sounds very familiar to me. You know, and so the next the next fear, you know, the next fear of terrorism, you know, could could easily I could see it being used to once again try to shut down business, maybe not in southern states, but certainly in you know states where there are big cities. Uh, so, yeah, we have to be prepared um, uh, and, you know, continue to analyze what the church's response was during covid, you know, in the midst of all of this, because there's still a lot of there's still a lot of. uh I think, you know, Pew sitters who are scratching their heads as to as to, you know, why some of these decisions were made the way they were. The blind trust in government, um, you know, uh, uh, Mark Dever, uh, you know, famously said, uh, at least in in reform circles, he said, you know, go with government when it when it was talking about all of this stuff going on. And. um you know, I think we now know. I think the evidence is clear that we were being misled and lied to uh, by healthcare professionals who were getting their information from the CDC and and the World Health Organization and, and everything else. Uh, and we were told that masks didn't work right before we were told we all had to wear them. So anyway, I'll I'll rant over for the day.
0: Okay. <laughs> I understand. Well, just be ready. It's uh, something will come. If it isn't mass, it'll be something else because the the new religion that is basically part of our culture now, uh, since it's lost its uh, shape Francis Schaefer would say, the memory even of the Christian consensus is now that we are in a time when uh, the images and the uh, just trust your heart issues will uh, take precedence over everything else. And so we just need to be aware of that. All right. The number eight uh, from our friend, uh, Tom Hervey, uh, take heed whom you celebrate. Thoughts on John Brown and evangelical attitudes about him. Uh, Here is uh, a question that should John Brown be celebrated as a heroic figure? And in this article basically summarizes, you know, John Brown, if you're not aware of the total history, you can read this article. And Tom Harvey gives uh, an overview of what it is. There's even a a college named uh, John Brown University uh, that talks about the appreciation of what he uh, did. Uh, And so what Tom Harvey is saying in laying out the scheme is that uh, is It is here, he says, that uh, John Brown enters the question. Many people in his day regarded him as a hero with few equals, and after his death, he was hailed as a martyr and prophet. Uh, Henry David Thoreau uh, saying that he had become an angel of light and a popular camp tune, uh, saying that he was John the Baptist of the Christ that we are to see. Uh, the enthusiasm has not dimmed, it seems, that for Christianity Today has published an article urging the glad acceptance of Brown as an evangelical hero. So he goes on, uh, John Brown was hanged for treason and murder for leading the seizure of the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which was uh, then West Virginia, uh, now, now West Virginia, it is now West Virginia, as part of a scheme of forcefully abol- uh, to forcibly abolish slavery in the southern states. Brown's plan was to use his actions to incite slaves in the surrounding areas to flee their masters and join his forces, after which they would then march southward, collecting men and materiel as they went. Ostensibly, his forces would fight only in self-defense if accosted. Uh, That last bit makes uh, for a large claim to swallow when we remember that John Brown had already attained national notoriety for organizing private militants in the Um, bleeding Kansas crisis earlier in the 1850s. Uh, Brown had presided over the um, massacre um, in Potawatomi, uh, in which uh, five men were hacked to death in what would be considered a cold blood murder. The other facts are also against interpreting his plan and actions as a scheme of fomenting an armed but purely defensive insurrection, such as the two of the five men band killed at Harper's Ferry were unnamed. So he goes on in this case and says, was this um, something that was right? Was he being a hero in terms of the, in the defense of breaking down uh, slavery or to fight against it? Uh, and Harvey takes a position that no, not, not because of the, the things that he did and the way he did them do not make him a hero. And so we have to look at the bigger picture. So he says, And and in the outcome of Brown's misadventure at Harper's Ferry, we see the wisdom of our Lord's instruction at this point. Brown's insurrection utterly failed. He gained only a handful of supporters among the local slave population, succeeded in getting himself and many of his men and several citizens killed, and further aggravated the already tense relations between North and South, ultimately uh, playing an important role in provoking secession and subsequent war that killed more than 620,000 uh, men in that civil war. So uh, in it, he says, there's another way that we are to approach it. and let you read that in, uh, as you read uh, Tom Harvey's uh, uh, assessment in this op-ed piece. So when someone celebrates Brown, he is therefore celebrating a man who contradicted the teachings of scripture under the guise of fulfilling it. Against this, consider these words and ponder whether John Brown's behavior accords with them. Whoever says he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Christ walked in the way of works of mercy and witness of his death, redeemed the souls of men. Brown walked in the way of the sword and came to an end, which Christ predicted for those who do so. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Uh, So um, in no part is our faith to honor such a man and the scriptural data abundantly points in the other way. So uh, taking a different spin and read on a um, man who's held, as Tom Hervey acknowledges in his uh, opinion piece here, uh, was, is considered a hero because of his stance against slavery and what he did to uh, try to bring it down. So it's thought provoking, it'll uh, stir, probably good discussion, and I trust that will be the case and that we'll you know learn from it.
1: I would love to see. And I don't know, maybe Tom Hervey's opinion on the American Revolution compared to this would be uh, would be the same. Uh, but if it were different, it'd be good to compare the two situations uh, and, and uh, highlight why why one mm. is just and the other not. I mean, I'm I'm not one of the guy I'm not one of these guys that thinks that the American Revolution was a violation of Romans 13. But he right. does cite Romans 13 in, you know, condemning uh, uh, John Brown Um What's interesting, he, this, is, this is maybe a kind of a tertiary point, but he, he he cites Christianity Today, which I think was just exposed as giving a lot of money to uh, politicians who are against every one of the Ten Commandments, which is very ironic. But there's a Christianity Today piece telling conservatives, white evangelicals, that they need to embrace they need to embrace John Brown and what he did. And it's because he was an abolitionist, right? He's trying to be. And so but I, I, I think if they were to apply the same logic to, I don't know, those who think bombing abortion clinics are a good thing. I don't think Christianity today would write a piece celebrating that.
0: All right, And that's Tom Harvey's point uh, that we need to take into account. And I think the quest- issues are somewhat different than what took place in the American Revolution. But we'll save that for another day. Okay, Number nine is uh, Genesis. Bible authors believed it to be history. The important thing is that God created, it. created, isn't it? Uh, it says, ever had someone tell you you're missing the whole point, the purpose of Genesis is to teach that God is our creator. We should not be so divisive over the small details. Genesis teaches the theological truth of who and why, uh, not about how and when, or else they say that the Bible is a book of faith and more uh, and morality, not of history. An obvious answer is, why should we trust Genesis when it says God created if we can't trust it on the, the details? After all, Jesus told Nicodemus, I have spoken to you about earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you not believe if I speak about heavenly things? So it says, however, the critics overlook at something even more important, that Genesis is written as real history. And this is why the rest of the Bible treats the events, people, and time sequences as real history, not uh, parables, poetry, or allegory. So he says, what does the rest of Scripture say? And he gives uh, quite a few examples. For instance, um, he says the age and unique creation of Adam and Eve mattered to Jesus. When teaching about marriage, He, uh, in Mark 10, he says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason... A man shall leave his mother and his father and united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one. So here Jesus quoted Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 about a real first man and first woman who became the first couple. And this was the basis of marriage between one man and one woman today. Okay, that's one of the examples. The other is the time frame of creation week matters to God. God himself wrote in the Ten Commandments with his fingers. The fourth one is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And then the reason is for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Clearly, the time framework is important. Otherwise, the commandment is meaningless. Or he talks about Adam's sin uh, bringing death mattered to Paul in what he preached. First Corinthians 15 uh, verses uh, 21 and following. For since death came through a man, that's uh, Adam, uh, the resurrection of Christ comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so it is written the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam a living, life giving spirit. Paul explained that the gospel, that is the good news, is necessary because of the bad news that our ancestor Adam's sin had brought to, uh, death uh, to all people. So all compromised views place, uh, bef- uh, uh, place death before Adam's sin, thus undermined the gospel. So you can see what he is doing as he talks about Cain and Abel, and where there's in the scripture, the order of creation uh, being a pro- principle that Paul and other parts of scripture refer to with reference to relationship of husband wife with the uh, officers in the church. Uh, what happened with Noah and the flood and so forth. So in summary is, uh, these are just a few examples of where the Bible writers take Genesis as history. Indeed, the inspired writers treat the people, events, and times as real, not merely literary or theological devices. And the reality is the history is foundational to crucial teachings about faith and morality. And so, Paul, I think these are good ways, one way to look at the you know, historicity of the event itself, what God did, and how that laid the foundation for His um, expectation in the life of the church in the world.
1: Yeah, this is a great piece uh, to really just kind of take you on a uh, a biblical tour of how everything. When they mention Genesis, when they mention Adam and Eve, when they mention the fall, they are you know, coming at it from a a literal sense. They are coming at it from a historical sense. They obviously believed uh, in the book of Genesis the way, you know, conservative, confessional uh, people today would believe it. And uh, and it's just basically a proof article showing you the proof text in the New Testament where that was clearly the writer's understanding, uh, you know, was... The, this this side, this relationship between Genesis and and uh, and what happened is being true and historical. And so it's really neat. I mean, you covered some verses already, Dominic. There are more in here as well uh, that just kind of uh, show you that. So I, I think it's a great article, really uh, uh, helpful. So
0: good. All right. Then number 10 uh, by Jonathan Van Maran, uh Euthanasia. Would it bother us more if they used pillows? That's an interesting question, Paul. I was, thought it was very thought-provoking, and it's number ten, but the readers chose. It says um, nearly 3,000 people died by euthanasia in Belgium in 2022. One of them was uh, 36-year-old Alex, uh, Alexina uh, Watsi, uh, Watsis, uh, who was suffering from terminal cancer in 2021. She was told that she would likely be, had, likely had less than a year to live by March 20, 2022. Alexina, uh, was declining rapidly, so she decided to request euthanasia. A doctor and two nurses came to her home where she lived with her partner, uh, Christopher um, uh, Stulens, and his 15-year-old daughter, Tracy, to administer the lethal injection. After a brief sleep before the fateful event, a nurse woke uh, Stulens and his daughter and asked if they wanted to say goodbye. After their farewell, they left the room to wait on the terrace and the doctor went in with the syringes. They expected Alexina's death to be swift and silent. After a moment, they heard screams. I recognized her voice, Doolin said. Afterwards, see, we saw her lying on the bed with her eyes and mouth open. A postmortem examination revealed this truth, that Alexina had been suffocated to death. Some news reports indicate that the doctor used a pillow when the drugs failed to kill her. Others say that the nurses took turns holding the pillow over the young woman's face until she has asphyxiated. So now the family is suing, uh, suing, with the, suing with their lawyers, stating that they are seeking to ensure that this sort of thing of being killed via suffocation rather than lethal injection uh, never happens again. So the public protection service of the Liege also uh, has also apparently opened a murder investigation, although they haven't explained why one method of killing administered by medical professionals would be homicide and the other uh, uh, would be health care. In fact, a Belgian politician has hastened to make that distinction. What happened is not euthanasia, he assures the press. Such a definition of this terrible situation devalues the gesture of euthanasia, which accompanies a person to the end without pain. So you can see the dilemma, Paul, in this is that uh, the gal said, okay, the law allows me to say I don't feel like my quality of life is good, so I'll go ahead and exercise the right under law to uh, die by euthanasia, which is intended to be, as this article says, with a uh, some kind of drug that is administered and you quietly just slip away. And apparently – the drug didn't work. And so the doctor and the two nurses um did do their duty. They she wanted to die. And so they the drugs didn't do it. So we put a pillow over her face. And uh, it seemed all of a sudden that it wasn't didn't it didn't feel right. So what's the difference? Uh and that's the reason the title is Would it bother us more if they used pillows? That is, would euthanasia bother us more if it was Instead of just a quiet slipping away with a, a poisonous drug, or if someone just actually used a pillow, yeah, and yeah. and it, it ends up also talking about the same thing with reference to other forms of killing, like say with a uh, with a child in the in womb. Um, in the w- there is a popular pro life T shirt. Um, Van Meren says in the U S. some years ago that made this point. Would it bother us? more if they used guns. So if someone claims they want to end an abortion, then why not just use a gun? Someone claims they want to end their life, why not just use a gun? It's a compelling point, he says. Would it bother us more if grandma was dispatched painlessly with a gun? I suspect it would, even if that's what grandma specifically requested. We've decided to sanction killing people so long as we all play along with the elaborate charade that this is some sort of health care and that's why a prosecutor can toy with murder charges for the suffocation of a woman who is going to be legally killed by the same medical profession professionals in the same place on that same night which answers the question what uh, which answers the question what would it would it bother us more if they used a pillow or Use the
1: gun. Yeah. I mean, it just shows you that we are, uh, we are men, uh, drawing arbitrary lines. We're making up our own religion. We're making up our own standards as we go. The same thing happens when, you know, it's not a, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. But yet if a pregnant woman, you know, gets murdered, then, you know, you can be charged with killing two, uh, you know, two human beings. Right. So it's just arbitrary. It's, you know, life begins now, and, and it's you know or life ends now it's fine if it ends you know in this way uh, with uh, drugs but it's not okay if we actually have to do anything you know that's more physical or like hold a pillow down when i saw this story the first thing i did was search for the word canada because i'm familiar with canada's euthanasia laws specifically they've got some on the books now that are going to allow uh, trans kids who uh, are minors who want to kill themselves uh, against their parents wishes there are now uh, moving parts in Canada where they want to make that happen. They want your child uh, to be able to legally kill themselves, and there's nothing you can do about it as a parent. So if you're depressed, you're suicidal, you're trans, that that's what they're pushing for now in Canada. Really, really disgusting stuff. And um, specifically, they have one more story here about a coffee uh, a coffee cup. So uh, there are stories like these, like the horror stories of poor people opting for euthanasia in Canada, are extraordinarily inconvenient. Um, uh, Alexina uh, Watez's death at the hands of medical professionals was sanctioned by the state. But with a pillow? What do you think we are, barbarians? She was supposed to be injected with poison, eliminating an old lady with Alzheimer's. That's just fine. But making a scene by lacing her coffee and then shooting her up while she's while she was struggling and needed to be held down it, it uh it is important to kill with decorum you see because without that who are we anyway i mean so it really kind of goes to just this they it's the hush hush nature of things we know it's wrong deep down we know it's wrong but if we do it you know, with manners, if then it somehow hides the barbarism. I mean, it's the difference between with the abortion issue coming back, because, you know, this is a pro-life issue of natural birth to natural death. That's what true definition of pro-life is. But I mean, you you know, you compare the uh, barbarism of an abortion, uh, which is done in secret, versus the barbarism of the Aztecs on top of a ziggurat, holding a heart, you know, to, in front of the people. Uh, it's, so we're just trying to do it in a more secret way, and it's still just as evil.
0: Well, it's like a sanitizing uh, language, uh, which goes back to one of the other articles that we read in, in terms of how we... Uh, how we define things to ease our conscience because we are made in the image of god this is the point that many of these articles from the uh, perspective of the scripture is that because we're made in the image of god we do have a conscience and the conscience strikes and it won't leave us alone and we try and do things in a way that that will trans uh, uh alleviate the pain of the conscience uh, uh, coming out against us. So uh, I think that's an important uh, way to, uh, you know, just looking at this. Well, Paul, we've, um, those are the top 10. The author, the, um, the, I think the uh, uh, the readers of Quilla Report did well. And uh, so tomorrow, those of you who get the Aquila Report newsletter, uh, we'll get these top 10 that Paul and I have just reviewed. You'll be able to read them in your own leisure and, again, trust that you will share them. You can forward the email, encourage people who don't regularly read the ECOA report to do so or to sign up for the newsletter so they can receive it in their inbox on their own. And so we're just uh, glad to be able to be with you for this uh, week in the the ECOA report and weekly review. And trust that uh, you will enjoy your walk with the Lord, that you will live uh, fully in his face and enjoy the pleasures of his grace. And until the next time, we wish you well and God's blessing.